0: Hi there, welcome to Mosaic Intercultural Church, coming to you from London, Ontario, Canada. My name is Andrew Karam, and I'm the Executive Director and Pastor of Mosaic, and I want to welcome you to our sermon podcast. If you want to learn more about Mosaic, you can find us online at www.mosaicchurchlondon.com. is Andrew Karam, and I have the joy and the privilege of being the pastor of this wonderful church community, and uh, we are here at Norm and Donna's home. Uh, Norm is the chair of our elders board, and their house is right there, and we are here at the hospitality of their landlords who live there, Um, but this is a beautiful place where we've been able to worship during COVID for the summertime, and it is good to be here. Uh, Yeah, it's really good. Now, at Mosaic, we have four compass points that we follow, and I, I forgot to give credit last week uh, when I mentioned the first compass point because I got the idea of a compass point from a man named Dan Sheffield who is a professor at Tyndale and a church planter with the Methodist Church and uh, a trainer in cross-cultural things. And his, it was his idea to talk about uh, cross-cultural reconciliation as a compass point, as something that sets your direction, helps you know how to walk, but never a destination that you arrive at. And we talked about that a little bit last week. Uh, the second compass point that we're going to talk about uh, at, in the month of September is spiritual formation and discipleship. Now, spiritual formation and discipleship are not common words outside of the church, but inside the church, they're very common. Discipleship just means that you're a disciple of somebody, right? Which is something we also don't talk about very much. So you, we might use the word apprentice, or student to talk about somebody who is a disciple. Spiritual formation refers to how God forms our lives to make us complete in Jesus Christ. It's a picture, maybe of um, you know, the clay being shaped by the hands of a very skillful potter, being formed through the friction and through the spinning of the wheel, so that that shape. Uh, in the clay reflects the intention of the potter, the artist who is making it. So God forms our lives so that we are complete in Jesus Christ. And the beauty and goodness of Jesus fills us and transforms us. So we're going to talk about that a bit today. Um, but as I, as I mentioned last week, and I will repeat again, two, there, there, there's one practice that is kind of hidden in our church service. Two practices, actually, that are hidden in our church services that help us walk in these directions of cross-cultural reconciliation and then also spiritual formation and discipleship. They are the lectionary and the creed. The lectionary is just a schedule of readings that we follow with God's people all around the world. People from all sorts of Christian traditions take their readings from this schedule that goes. It goes through the whole Bible in the course of three years. And week by week, there's a reading from the Old Testament, the Psalms, uh, the New Testament, and the Gospels. And the readings that we've done today from Psalm 116 and then from James chapter 3, those are from the lectionary. And we follow the lectionary. It's not actually native to our tradition at Mosaic or, or from our church history. But it's a way of saying we're called to be in solidarity with God's people all around the world. And it's a practical way that we can live that out. The other thing that's amazing about the lectionary is that it follows the life of Christ through the calendar year. So what that means is that as you follow the lectionary readings, you're walking your year, walking with Jesus week by week. And that's what we're talking about. God is forming us by the power of the Scriptures as we listen to the Scriptures week by week and we reflect on them and try to live them out. We are following the life of Jesus. And we'll talk more about that, particularly because in the Christian year... We're coming to the end. The end of the Christian year is the end of October, which is when November starts, which is when Advent starts, when we look forward to Jesus coming. But we'll talk about that another time. But today, we're going to take a look at the book of James, but we're going to read it in light of uh, the reading for today from the Gospel of Mark. So if you would be willing to pray with me, we're going to reflect today on what Jesus calls us to in terms of discipleship and spiritual formation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the one who teaches us to dance. We praise you. You are so good. You are so good. You have been faithful to us. As the psalm says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord. Lord, your goodness runs after us day by day. And you are the one sent from the Father to redeem us. You are the one in whom we are made new, in whom the image of God is restored and renewed within us, Lord Jesus. So we pray that today, through the scriptures, through the worship, through our time together, you would continue to make us new in your image. Pour out your spirit on us, please. Open our ears and our hearts to hear you, to experience you. And guide us, we ask in in, the, in your name and by the power of your Spirit, Amen. All right. So, if you got a phone and you have a Bible app, or uh, you can just Google, we're going to look for Mark chapter eight. If you have a real, uh, if if you have a print Bible, uh, that was a total Freudian slip. If you have a print Bible, you can flip the pages and enjoy the feel of the pages between your hands. Um, we're reading. Mar, uh, John, no, I'm in John. That's not the right one. Mark, Mark chapter eight, starting in verse 27. All right, then uh, verse 27. So, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. And after three days, rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the book of James, that we which, which passage we read earlier, is this massive, massive warning to watch your tongue, to watch how you speak, because the tongue is powerful and it can start forest fires. And I don't think we need any, uh, any more teaching about that, you can see the forest fires that are going on around us right now as people are name-calling around the COVID disagreements, around all sorts of stuff online and in person. We, we experience the, the consequences and the pain of fiery words all the time. But James also says not many of you should actually aspire to be teachers or call yourselves teachers because those who teach will be held to a higher account. That's sobering. That'll make me scared. Then he also talks about integrity. He says, well, who are you? What are you, right? Can a, can a salt spring bring forth fresh water? Can a fresh water flow from a salt spring? Can a grapevine bring, bring forth apples, right? He uses all these things. It's like what you have to speak out of what flows out of your heart. And if you've got lies and, and, and bitterness, gossip, and, and mockery coming out of your mouth, well, Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You've got mockery, lying, bitterness, and all that kind of stuff inside of you. And that's, that's death. You're living in death. Instead, what should flow from us is what flows from God, if God dwells within us. Our words should be filled with life, with joy, with wisdom, if the Spirit of God lives within us. And so James is actually modeling for us discipleship. He is looking at this church community and saying, you all need to learn about how to speak to each other. You need to learn the power of words. And so he gives them really powerful metaphors, and he uses the power of his words to correct them and to say, hey, let's go. Pay attention. Let your life flow from the life of God within you. Let your words be life and be wise and pay attention to your words. That is an example of, of how spiritual formation and discipleship happens in the life of the church. Somebody cares about a community and writes a letter to correct them and to help them grow. And we see this with Jesus when he's walking with his disciples. Did you notice the experiential learning that Jesus is doing with his disciples? I've got to tell you about a, um, a teacher I had in grade 8. So this is back in the 1990s. Wonderful decade. And uh, I had this, this, um, this teacher in grade seven and eight named Mr. Vine. He had really big hair and a big beard before everybody was going for big hair and big beards. He was like the manly man before the manly men were all over the place. And he had a really great uh, accent. I don't know where, I don't know exactly his ethnic background, but he had a great accent. And Mr. Vine would talk a lot about eating your Wheaties. He's like, did you eat your Wheaties today? Which just meant like, did you come ready to work, right? Did you have energy? Are you strong? And Mr. Vine was our shop teacher, which I don't think people do anymore. So in this room, in a public school, you walked into this room, and there were wood-turning lathes, tools that were right there. And you could put a block of wood on a wood-turning lathe, and then you'd have a chisel in your hand, and you'd go up and turn that lathe on, and it would spin the wood really fast, and you would shape that piece of wood. You could form that piece of wood. That was pretty cool. There are also all sorts of saws, right? So you could take these, like, hack saws and coping saws, and you could – one of our projects was that we had to, to make a keychain out of plastic. And so you kind of did a doodle on paper, and then you took the um, – you took your saw, and you copied that doodle onto the plastic, cut it out with your own hands. None of this, like, 3-D printing computer stuff. Uh, what is that? And then, um, and then you had to, like, polish it up really good, and you had all these processes, The craziest thing was that there was something in the shop that would blow you up if you did it wrong. And so he taught us how to turn on welding equipment. And we learned in grade 7 and 8, probably grade 8, because really grade 7 is too young for these things. Uh, In grade 8, we learned how to actually weld. Put on the thing, light up, like turn on the gas in the right order and light it up, and then take that torch and bond two pieces of metal together with a beautiful, beautiful seem. Who does that anymore? It's amazing, right? I think it's amazing. But Mr. Vine brought us through experiential learning ex- learning, right? He wasn't teaching us ideas that we had to regurgitate. He was teaching us skills. And it really mattered if you listened to Mr. Vine because if you didn't listen to Mr. Vine when he said, "Make sure that your knuckles, that you're pushing this piece of wood through with your knuckles." If you didn't listen to him, then you could lose the tip of your finger, right? And so Mr. Vine was very friendly, but if he saw you sawing wood with your fingers out like this instead of with your knuckles, he would yell at you, hey, and you listened because your life kind of depended on it. That is much more a picture of Christian discipleship than what many of us have experienced in our lives for some of us, we think it when, when we hear a word like discipleship or being Jesus students or apprentices, what we think is I sit in a church classroom or I sit in somebody's house, we read a book and we talk about ideas. And maybe and we pray for each other. But what really matters is that we have the right ideas and we can say the right ideas in the right way. And if we can say the right ideas in the right way, then we can teach other people to say the right ideas in the right way. And then we wonder why we lack the power to live as Jesus lived today. Because Jesus took his disciples through experiential learning, which we're going to talk about a bit more, so that their words flowed from that experience of him and led to this wrestling with Jesus that ultimately led them into his life. So you can imagine, okay? Imagine if you were Jesus' student. I just, I just think this is so much fun to think about. Okay, you're, middle, like, you're, in the, you're, in, you're in what we call the Middle East, which wasn't called the Middle East back then. And as Jesus' student, you walked around from place to place. You went to tables, and you sat in people's homes, and you ate food with them. And you listened to Jesus talk about the kingdom of God. But you didn't hear him just tell you ideas, Right? He told you stories that you would have to chew on. But then you also watched as Jesus went out of his way to interact with people that you were not supposed to interact with. You watched as Jesus went into the room with the sick woman whose whose presence would contaminate him. But because of his great compassion, he goes into the room and he touches her. And you saw Jesus raise her from her sickbed and restore her to health. You saw Jesus teaching a crowd of people when somebody... Uh, He's indoors and somebody rips off the roof of the house that he's in and lowers a sick man through it. And there's all these religious leaders around who you know, know a lot more about God than you do. And you, you hear Jesus say to this guy who's being lowered from the roof, who can't walk, say to him, your sins are forgiven. And you watch all the religious leaders say, what? And you watch their faces change, right? As they're offended. And you watch as Jesus responds to offended leaders. And you see it. And you kind of freak out, I would expect. But you see it. And you see how Jesus says, listen, hey, why are you guys wondering about who has authority on earth to forgive sins? Which is, which is harder, to say to this guy, uh, pick up your mat and go home, or to say to him, your sins are forgiven? Here's a hint. They're both impossible. But then he says, so that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then you watch as this guy responds to Jesus, say, hey, take up your mat and go home. And you see this man take up his mat and walk out. And this goes on and on and on. You see Jesus cast out demons, but it doesn't just, you don't just, you're not an observer. Quite soon, Jesus says to you and to your friends, okay, guys, find a partner. Everybody find a buddy because I'm sending you out. And so you partner up, your buddies, and you go from town to town, and what you've seen Jesus do, you now do. And your mind is blown as you see demons leave people when you say, in the name of Jesus, unclean spirit, leave. And it does. And your and heart and your mind must explode when you, when you see somebody sick and you speak to them in the authority of Jesus' name and you say, in the name of Jesus Christ, be healed, and the person is healed and when you come back with your buddy back to Jesus you've got stories and you're like Jesus even the demons submitted to us and Jesus says hey i saw satan fall from fall from heaven don't be don't be so excited that the demons submit to you rejoice that your name's are written in heaven so as a follower of Jesus you have these experiences of going place to place with him watching him do his work but then also He is training you to do what he does, to be what he is. And that's a holistic experiential learning. You're gaining the very skills of your teacher, like Mr. Vine taught us his skills. But now in this particular episode, Jesus brings them to a different place. He says they're walking through the villages by Caesarea Philippi. Now that's the part of the town, like when you read that, normally you might go, okay, I don't know where Caesarea Philippi, that must not be, like, I don't know where it is, that must not be relevant. Don't think that. Context is everything. Context matters. Caesarea Philippi is this town that had a couple of interesting, uh, or this area that had a couple of interesting facts about it. Number one, there was this huge cave uh, where the I think it's the headwaters of the Jordan River flow out of this cave. So it's a source, right? That cave is a source of living water, you might say, running water, a source of, of running water for a whole region. It's a very significant thing. But in that cave also is a grotto where people would, in, in times before Jesus, would go to worship the god Pan. Pan, who has the, the, I think, the lower parts of a goat, the upper body of a human being, and then horns. A god of revelry, a god of all sorts of things that are whatever. He's not a true God, but that's where he was worshipped, in that area. But also, that place, Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea is the name of Caesar, right? Philippi is also a personal name. This name is, this place is named in honor of a great ruler, and in that place, there was a temple. You see, at this time, here's a little history lesson, at this time, in the, in the actual city of Rome, you couldn't have actually worshipped Caesar, because people were like, hey, Caesar's not that much better than the rest of us. But if you really wanted to show that you were loyal to Rome, but you were far away from Rome, what you could do is set up a temple to Caesar and worship Caesar in your village if you were far enough away. And so in Caesarea Philippi, people worshipped Caesar, the ruler of Rome, to show that they were loyal to him, to show that they were good citizens. It's in that place that Jesus says, "Who?" Do you, or who do people say that I am? It's in that place where Caesar is worshiped, where there's this ancient worship of Pan, that Jesus asks his disciples to talk about who he is. The confession of Jesus Christ matters based on your context. If everybody's sitting in church and reciting the words of the Nicene Creed and your parents force you to come to church or you're, you're at church for whatever reason and you read the words of the Nicene Creed because you're just going along with everybody else, right? And you say, okay, yeah, I believe in God, I believe in God, blah, 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 blah. And yeah, I believe in his, one, in his one son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, blah, 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 blah. You can say those words and in that context, it can be meaningless to you. On the other hand, say you're at Masonville Mall and you're walking around the mall. And um, I don't know what happens to you at the mall. Uh, I don't, we don't go there very often as a family because it, uh, it's hard for me. It's hard for us. It's very stressful. But imagine in that context, as you're looking around and you see all these good-looking people wearing beautiful clothes and somebody says to you, who do you say Jesus is? Number one, that's a very odd thing to ask in the mall, probably. Probably. But if in that mall you say, well, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus Christ crucified and raised from the dead is Lord and God. That will completely reorient your attention and it will mean something. Powerful. Very powerful. The context of our confession makes a difference. And discipleship this experiential way, Jesus' followers are learning from Jesus also how to disciple others, right? One of the things that many of us have done here at Mosaic is we've gone on trips to other places. We've gone on trips to Andek First Nation. We've gone on trips to lots of places in the world. And there's lots of, you can do that very badly and you can do that well. So we're not talking about all the ins and outs of that. But one of the points of those trips is to actually take us outside into a different context so that we experience Jesus in a new way. And when we do that, we experience something like we experienced here today, right? When all of a sudden, unexpectedly, we're being discipled in how to dance, right? For those of you who came a little bit after testimony time, I'm sorry you missed it. It was wonderful. It's Hattie's birthday today. Kenny and and got up and led us in this wonderful song from Tanzania. Yeah? Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe. Sorry, from Zimbabwe. And we danced and worshiped. And that's part of our discipleship, right? When you go to another place or when you experience people from other places worshiping Christ, you are being discipled, you're being trained, you're being formed to worship God in more beautiful and more full ways. It's one of the reasons why intercultural reconciliation and discipleship have to go together, Because the ways in which my brothers and sisters who are coming just from a different place in life than I am, the ways that they follow Jesus, the ways that they worship are meant to instruct and transform me so that I, with them, become more like Jesus. Our common confession matters. We're being discipled together. So Jesus asks them, okay, in this context, who do you say that I am? And so, or who do, who do the people say that I am? And, and, and the disciples say, well, you know, some people say you're Elijah, some Jeremiah, some, some of the prophets. So everybody was expecting a great leader. Jesus, this is what people are saying about you. But then Jesus turns around and he says, well, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. So I want to just point out a couple things about that. Number one, the disciples, those who have experienced Jesus closely, They know him differently than everybody that sees him from a distance. Now, that seems very obvious, but it's actually very important. Because Jesus lived in what he called an adulterous and sinful generation. I think you could say the same thing about our generation. People at a distance from Jesus can think of him differently than those who have experienced him for themselves. And if we are students of Jesus, if we are followers of Christ, then we should have a different opinion of Jesus than everybody else. You would expect that. Now, I also want to point out the second thing, that Peter's confession is actually 100% true and 100% false at the same time. He's 100% right that Jesus is the Christ. He is 100% wrong about what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. He is 100% right that Jesus is the Christ. Christ means anointed, God's special servant. That is absolutely true. Jesus is God's promised servant, the one that God promised to the prophets of Israel in generations past, the fulfillment of all the promises. He is that. But what Peter means when he says that Jesus is the Christ is 100% wrong. Ah, maybe not 100% because God, so he would agree that God chose Jesus. Everything else he's got wrong. And I think we can understand why. If you were with Jesus in this experiential learning journey, and what you were learning was, man, Jesus breaks down barriers. He's revolutionary. He's he's got this incredible power, and we have this power too. And look at the crowds. Look at the people coming to us. Look at this. This is going to change the world. If you had that kind of an experience with Jesus, I think you would expect that you know the rest of the story. You're going to become powerful, and skilled like him. And more and more people are going to want to follow you, and you're going to build a movement that will transform the world through these incredible spiritual powers and skills that Jesus has. And Jesus is going to just go from strength to strength. He's going to continue to make the leaders around him look like fools, and eventually he is going to be the one that everybody bows down in front of, and and you're going to get to be like honored and skilled and powerful beside him. Your discipleship up to this point has not been about learning to lose. It's been about learning to trust him, learning to do new things, gaining new power. Add to that the way that uh, a lot of people in that time interpreted the Old Testament scriptures, what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures, And it's it's almost impossible that Peter would actually understand what Jesus meant, or what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. And I think that's very important for us, because though we know the rest of the story, right? When we confess Jesus Christ, we say, Jesus Christ, you are the one who died and rose again. You are the fully God, fully human. You are our Savior and our Lord and our King. Although we know the rest of the story and we believe that about him, It is very easy for us to expect that our discipleship would still be about getting stronger, hurting less, and suffering less. We we easily expect our discipleship to reduce our pain and to make us more successful. It is true. Amen. It's true. And so imagine... That the, what is that called? The cognitive dissonance, maybe? The mismatch? When after he's confessed Christ and he's been right, Jesus starts saying, okay, now that you understand that I am the Christ, understand that it is necessary, it is necessary that I will be rejected by the leaders, I will suffer and die, and I will be crucified, and on the third day I'll be raised raised to new life. There is no way that Peter could have possibly taken that in not possible. And so, in true loyal fashion, he wrestles. He wrestles with Jesus, and he pulls Jesus aside, and he begins to rebuke him and say, no, 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 Jesus, that's not how it goes. What are you talking about? I mean, imagine if the one who you're going to become says, oh yeah, by the way, everybody's going to hate me and kill me. Well, that's now your future if you are that person's disciple, if you're that person's apprentice. Good golly. What's he supposed to do? So he rebukes Jesus. He says, no, that can't be the story. The scriptures don't say that, Jesus. That's terrifying to me. Don't talk that way. You will actually just make us all depressed. And we're like, people are going to go away. And this is terrible. It's, It's failure, Jesus. This is awful. And then Jesus turns around and he sees the rest of his disciples with Peter. And he, I mean, it's interesting to me that Mark gives us that detail, right? he sees the rest of the disciples with Peter. And he knows the rest of the disciples are thinking the same thing. And he knows that this private conversation that he's having with Peter, this private wrestling that Peter's doing with him, which you could call insubordinate and all sorts of other things, he knows that this is actually what's going on in the lives of his disciples as well. And so he speaks to rebuke this idea that Peter has. And he says, get behind me, Satan, because you do not have in your heart the concerns of God. You are only, in your heart are only human concerns. And here's the thing. This is where discipleship gets real for all of us. Because it is easy to show up at church and to confess Jesus Christ crucified and raised from the dead. It is a deeper work of transformation that needs to happen to shift the concerns of our hearts From merely human concerns to truly be concerned with the things of God. Now, here's where I get a little bit nervous. How do you tell the difference between human concerns and the concerns of God? What does that even mean? What on earth does that mean? You have in mind human concerns and not God's concerns. Does it mean that, like, Peter should just be thinking about, you know, practicing spiritual disciplines all the time? And he should, like, what does it mean? We get some clues from the passage. Number one, human concerns will lead us to rebuke Jesus. Okay, that's significant. So if you're if you're wrestling with Jesus and you want to rebuke him and tell him to get lost, there's probably some human concern going on there for you. You're probably missing out on, on God's concerns. But then Jesus later on then turns to everybody. He turns to the crowd, not just his disciples. Very important. Even the crowd needs to hear this. If you want to be Jesus' disciple, you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Because anybody who wants to keep their life will lose it. Anybody who is willing to lose their life, or anybody who does lose their life for Jesus' sake and for the gospel, will keep it. Well, there's another clue about what are the things of God, what are the things of people. The, the things of people are the things that make us want to keep our own life, preserve our own life. Which again, let's just dig into that a bit. Does that make sense? That the things that make us want to preserve our own lives are the things that we should not be concerned about? that we should not be concerned about safety, we should not be concerned about clothing and shelter and basic human rights? Is that is that cuz what on earth? How do you how do you understand these things? So let's take what the text says and let's see if we can piece it through. If we have at in our hearts the concerns of people we will, re- we, will, we will rebuke Jesus. We will definitely not want him to die. Uh, we don't want to die with him. Number two, we will want to preserve our own lives. But if we have in mind the things of God, then what we will do is we will abandon our lives. We will deny ourselves, and we will be willing to publicly identify with Jesus and endure shame with him. Okay. That actually makes all the sense in the world. If we think about it this way, going back to the mall, why do people go to the mall? <laughs> I saw that look. I got a little like, mm, what do you think, Pastor Andrew? Why do people go to the mall? To shop. And why do, Yes, Hattie, bring it. Yeah, why do we go to the mall? To shop. Yes. We want to look good, right? I go to the mall because I want the latest technology. I want, you know, and, and, and good golly, like, the mall is designed so that I look good. I want to control other people's opinions of me. I really am invested in image management. And so I will go to a massive building that is like almost inhuman in the way that it's designed. But I will spend hours there for the sake of making myself look good to other people. And, and hopefully other people will look good. Like will think I look good. Well, Jesus said, hey, have you seen the birds? Have you seen the blue jays? Have you seen the Orioles? Have you seen the Cardinals? What about the Robins? Have you seen the Eagles? What about the lilies? And the and like, have you seen the roses? Have you seen the beautiful nasturtiums? That was for you, Grace. Tulips, exactly. And Jesus said like, hey, listen. Your Father in heaven clothed them with splendor and beauty. And I tell you, even the best dressed people in the world don't look better than them. Are you not worth more than the tulips? Don't you think your heavenly father will clothe you, you of little faith? And he said, look at those birds. Look at the squirrels. Look at the ants. Look at how your father in heaven cares for them and supplies what they need. You're concerned about building your retirement fund. You're concerned about getting the career that you need. And that's consuming you. You need to preserve your life, you think. But look, those guys don't labor or spend. And they don't store up things. They don't have savings accounts. There's no tax-free saving account in the Robins' name or the Blue Jays' name. How are you not more valuable than the Robins and the Blue Jays? So how much more will Heavenly Father feed you, you of little faith? You see, here's the thing. Let's spin this around. Our Heavenly Father's concern, this comes from a wonderful theologian, sorry. Our Heavenly Father's concern is to do good to us, who he created. Our Heavenly Father's concern, the thing that is his responsibility, is to clothe you and me is to provide for us what we need. Our Heavenly Father's concern is our welfare. Why? Because he's good, and he brought us into existence. So if we perish, it's on him. That's why Jesus came to rescue us. Because our Heavenly Father really is concerned about our welfare. He's the one who's committed to keeping us in life, rescuing us from death. And that's why it makes so much sense to deny ourselves, to not have to hold on to our lives, but to let them go. And instead, to have only in our hearts the things of God, which are what? To love and obey God and to love the people around us with the love of Christ. To care for this world with the love of God. Simply to love and obey God. That's our concern. Regardless of whether it makes us look good, regardless of whether, sadly, it makes us rich, regardless of whether anything else. That's our concern. To love and obey our Heavenly Father. And He is the one who, come shame, come suffering, come disease, come death as it will come, He's the one who will carry us through a new life in Christ and the new creation. He's the one who is concerned with our welfare. And so we are free in Jesus Christ to deny ourselves, to identify with Jesus and say, yes, I follow Jesus, of course. And you guys who don't think that he makes sense, well, come and follow him, right? We are free, free from the need to preserve our own lives, free from the need to win. Because... When we die with Jesus, we find true life. And so discipleship and spiritual formation is this deep, deep work where God takes our spirits, our our deepest hearts, our deepest longings and, and reorients them so that they flourish and are free in him, right? He takes those deep desires that he's given us and he calls us to know his love so deeply, that with Jesus we can say, "Yeah, I'm willing to endure rejection for the sake of loving my heavenly Father and obeying Him, and dying with Christ." And let's go. Let's it's joy. It's peace. And when it, but but, so that's true. Everything that I've just said is true. That's a bold statement. Um, the challenge is walking with each other in those places, having those conversations with each other. And here's where we're going to, I think, end before we come to the table. Many of us have actually been discipled quite deeply. People have modeled for us the life of Christ. Some of us might have gone through courses. Many of us have been through Bible studies. People have been, like, investing their lives in us. And that's amazing. We have actually... uh, a, 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 a treasury, a, a storehouse full of good things that we can pass on to others. And we still feel remarkably inadequate. We feel like we could never disciple other people or we feel like if I was going to lead somebody else, I'm too scared to because I will be wrong. And frankly, I don't want to love people that much. It hurts to love people that much. I don't know if people really want to follow me, right? We we can come up with so many reasons to say, I'm just going to keep on being led, and I'm not going to turn around and feed other people with what I've been given. We can come up with so many reasons to do that, and many of them, you know, are fair, and you got to wrestle with Jesus with that. But I just want to point out that Jesus trusted his disciples to go do the work that he did when their confession of him was 100% right and 99% wrong that Jesus did not require his disciples to understand everything about the Christian faith, everything about himself before he trusted them to go and do what he was doing. He did not wait. And the, the, this work of spiritual formation and discipleship is not, Lord have mercy, it is really not to put your, to put the people that lead you on a pedestal and to pretend like they are sinless. And it's not to pretend that you have it all together. This work of spiritual formation and discipleship and leading others is to say we are together followers of Christ, broken people who need Jesus to correct us all the time. So I'm willing to be corrected. I am learning. I'm happy to to teach you what I've been taught. And I have to be willing to be corrected and to learn alongside of you. Because even if I've been following Jesus for 60 years and you just began following Christ six months ago, I'm still a baby. I'm still a baby in terms of knowing Jesus Christ. I'm still young. Because knowing Jesus and becoming like him is this eternal compass point that we follow forever. Always being transformed. So we're going to wrap up here. I want to give you just a couple of minutes to to take a breath and just ask God, like, God, what do you want me to receive from this moment? What have you been speaking to me about? We are going to come to the table to, to celebrate communion together. Uh, where we proclaim and celebrate the reality that Jesus did what he said he would do. He went through suffering. He was rejected. He died for us and for our salvation. And when we come to the table, we're saying, Jesus, rebuke me like you rebuked Peter. I want to deny myself, take up my cross and follow you. So I do we take just a couple of minutes of quiet and reflect and pray before we come to the table. You have been listening to a sermon podcast from Mosaic Intercultural Church in London, Ontario, Canada. My name is Andrew Karam, and I want to thank you for joining us. If you want to find out more about Mosaic and about the work that we do, please check us out online at www.mosaicchurchlondon.com.